Let's talk about the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. We classify prophets as to the time period, whether pre-exile or post-exile. He was a pre-exile prophet. And to the kingdom to which he prophesied, and he was prophesying to the northern kingdom. He worked about 750 to 725 B.C. And so he was an early prophet prophesying to the kingdom of Israel. What was going on at the time? Well, the time period was that it was a time of political and moral and religious decline. Things were going downhill. Things never got much better in the northern kingdom. Unlike the southern kingdom, which had some good kings, they'd have a good king and a bad king and a good king and then one good and bad, and, but not in the north. They had nothing but bad kings. And so things are headed south. The point of the book is to warn them of impending and inevitable doom. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm going to bring them to captivity. There is inevitable doom coming because of this nation's sin. And yet, and yet, in spite of all that sin, God's love continues. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. They just announced their doom. But now he talks about the love that he has for them. We see that again in chapter 11 and in verse 8 and again in 14 and in verse 4. So what's the point of the book? Inevitable doom that's coming upon this nation, and yet God still loves them. Not because of their sin, in spite of their sin, he wants them to come back and he's calling for them to repent. Now let's look at an overview of the book. In chapters 1 to 3, we deal with and see a picture of Israel's adultery, their spiritual adultery, going after their idols, going after their lovers, is pictured and illustrated by Hosea and his wife Gomer. And she goes with her lovers, and yet he brings her back. And we'll see how he does that in a moment. Then chapters 4 to 13 deals with the inevitable doom that's coming because of their sin. He talks about their guilt in chapters 4 to 8. He talks about the doom that awaits 9 through 11. And then he talks about their earlier history, chapters 12 and 13. And then the book ends on the note of restoration and pardon and forgiveness that's possible that ultimately is fulfilled in the Messiah as he talks a little bit about that toward the end of the book. Now, Hosea is a colorful prophet, perhaps more so than some of the other prophets. And what I mean by that, it's not just a book that just says, here is a nation in sin and they're going to face doom, but the colorful expressions that are found throughout the book are quite applicable to our own time. So let's talk about Hosea for today. And what I want us to do is look at a number of things found in the book. We're going to list some things found in the book and then just draw some brief application of that and then move to the next. And we're going to look at a dozen different expressions found throughout the book of Hosea. So let's go to chapter 1. Let's talk about Hosea for today. How the, the message and the point is very applicable to us today. Here's the first thing as we talk about Hosea for today. Chapters 1 through 3. God views sin of his people as adultery. God views the sin of his people as adultery. The charge against Israel is that they are committing adultery. 
Now, was there literal physical adultery? Perhaps that was involved, as it often was, in idolatry. But he's really focusing on their sin of idolatry and going after other gods is like one going after their lovers. So look at chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. Uh, verse 2, he said, I bring a charge against the mother and bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her, let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. In other words, she's committing adultery. Let her put all of that away. Read a little bit further with me. Look at verse, verse 4. Verse 4, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for the mother has played the harlot. Now that's enough to make the point. God viewed Israel going after their gods, after idols, as nothing but committing adultery, he said. Well, I want you to notice in chapter 3 now, beginning at verse 1, there was a parallel drawn so that it could be vividly seen by the children of Israel, by the nation of Israel, that here was Hosea the prophet had a wife named Gomer. And she went after her lovers, the text says. In other words, she left him and went after her lovers and he lost her. And she's going after her lovers. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. He said to me, go again, love the woman whom you've loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Go find that woman that left you and she's now committing adultery, just like the love I have for the children of Israel, he said. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the parallel that's being drawn is, just like we have with Hosea's wife following after her lovers, so likewise Israel has gone after her lovers, gone after their idols. Now stop and think about that just for a moment. Think how you would feel if you're married, and if you're not married, picture yourself as being married. To someone that you dearly love and picture yourself as being the one where your mate has turned away and gone after other lovers. And they chose the other lovers over you. How would that make you feel? And here's the lesson that we're learning from that. That's how God views us when we turn to sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It may not be idolatry. But we may decide to go after the error that we've bought into, or it might be after worldliness that we've gone into. Whatever it may be, when we go into sin, God views his people as committing adultery. Do you want God to view you as one going after lovers? Do you want God to view you as Hosea viewed Gomer? A very practical lesson. We see Hosea is for today. Here's a second lesson I learned. Look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I see something about God's merciful love. A very practical thing about God's merciful love. Now let's go back to chapter 3. We've already read verse 1 twice. Let's see that again. Then the Lord said to me, go again and love the woman who is loved by a lover. And is committing adultery. Now get the picture. God is saying to Hosea, I want you to go find that woman that left you, your wife that left you and went after her lovers, and love her again. Well, what's that like? Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. He said, you go find them. You see, in spite of Israel's adultery, God still loved them and wanted to rescue them. And that's illustrated in Hosea's Love for Gomer. Now I want you to notice now at verse 3, verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. That was a year's wage for a priest. Now you think about that. She's gone so far, she's gone off into harlotry, and now she's being sold on the auction block. 
And Hosea wants her back, so he goes to get her back, and he has to buy her at an auction, and he has to bid for her, and keeps bidding until he finally gives a, a year's salary for her. He, gave her. he gave 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley to buy back the woman that left him. Now, why did he do that? Go back to verse 1. Go love her. Go love her, he said. Love a woman who is loved by a lover. You go get her. And you go bring her back. And it took uh, 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And that demonstrates God's love. Now here's the point I'm learning from that. We never go so far that we're out of the reach of the love of God. It don't matter how far we go into sin. We'll lose our soul, certainly, unless we turn back. You go deep into sin. You say, I've gone so far. But you never reach the point you're out of the reach of the love of God. You think of this, this woman who had to be bought from an auction slave, an auction block. You think of how far and how deep that Israel went, and God said, I still love them just like you love Gomer. That you would go that far. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you will, and in verse 4. We never go so far that God doesn't love us. He still wants to rescue us. He desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That includes you and that includes me. No matter what you've done, how far you go, how wicked you become, God still loves you and is willing to reach out and rescue you. Here's something else I'm learning from Hosea and why he is for us today. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6 and then we'll jump later to chapter 8. But let's go to chapter 4 verse 6. I'll learn a lesson about forgetting God's law. Forgetting the law of God. Let's go to chapter 4 now. This begins the indictment of Israel. He's pictured them as committing adultery. What is it they were doing? They've gone after their idols. But notice in chapter 4 verse 6, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You see, Israel was lacking in knowledge. We're not through with verse 6. Let's notice that there are two things he mentions about that. First, notice verse 6, because they have rejected knowledge. Why are they lacking in knowledge? It's because they have rejected knowledge. In other words, they've rejected the law of God. They didn't want to know the law of God. They didn't want to hear the law of God. So they rejected and they have forgotten the law of their God. There's a second thing mentioned at verse 6. They have forgotten, notice he says, because they have forgotten the law of their God. They have rejected knowledge and they have forgotten what they didn't know. They didn't really want to hear it, but what they did know and what they did hear, they had rejected it and they forgot the law of their God. Now let's go to chapter 4, 8 and verse 14. That's not all they forgot. <clears throat> they'd reached the point they'd even forgotten their God. In other words, there is a connection between the law of God and God himself, and they had forgotten the law because they had really forgotten their God. Oh, they knew about God, and they, they hadn't forgotten him in the sense that they could talk about him. But notice chapter 8, verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker. What did he do? Well, he went and built temples, and Judah multiplied their fortified cities. They're doing things that show that they really didn't have a use or a need for God in their life. We turn to the nations for our defense. We turn to our idols for our service. They've forgotten all about their God. Do we forget about the law of God? You see how, how Hosea is for us today? 
So go back again to chapter 4 and verse 6. They're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Could it be that, that I have a lack of knowledge? How could I forget the law of God? Do we ignore what we know it says? In other words, do we read and understand and listen to sermons and listen to Bible classes and listen to other people talk about the scriptures and I know what it says, but then I ignore what it says? Do you ever think in your mind, I know that, but... And you're going to do contrary to what you know to be right. I know I ought to, but here's why I'm doing this over here. You might not even tell anybody that, but you know this is right, but I'm going to do this over here. I'm ignoring and forgetting the law of God. Do you ever forget to check or compare the word before you decide on a matter? In other words, you hear something taught, do you buy into that system without ever going back? And let me check and see like the Bereans did and search the scriptures to see if it's so. Let me check that. I don't know what if I want to buy that. I don't know if I want to agree with that. I'm not going to draw that conclusion until I've checked it by the book. You forget to do that? Or maybe it's something that I've decided is, is not sinful. Have I checked it by the book before I decide it's not sinful? Or before I take this action, have I checked it by the book to see if that's true? See if that agrees. Do we forget to apply the simple matters? In other words, we come to a circumstance, do we decide what we're going to do or do we go back to the book and say, you know what, this is where things like the golden rule applies. And so here's where the golden, I don't need to behave like that because the golden rule says, and this is where it fits, or do I forget the law of God? You see, we sometimes do forget the law of God, don't we? Here's something else. Look at chapter 4 and verse 15. Hosea told them <clears throat> that you need to pay attention to the problems of others. Let's go to chapter 4 and in verse 15. You need to pay attention to the problems of others. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Though you, Israel, play the harlot. That's what we saw in chapter 2. Let not Judah offend, nor come up to Gilgal, nor go up to beth Aven, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives, Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now, what am I learning from that? We'll see as Israel's going down the drain. Remember, it was political decline. It was moral decline and spiritual decline. Israel's going down the drain. Judah, her sister, needs to watch and be warned. Go back and read that again. Look at verse 15. Though Israel play the harlot, let not Judah offend. In other words, don't let Judah follow her in her shoes. Don't let Judah follow the same course. Don't let Judah do what Israel is doing. Judah, you need to pay attention. Here's the point. Take heed to what they're doing, and take heed that you, Judah, are doing much of the same thing, and it's going to lead to the same results. They didn't pay attention. What do we mean by that? They didn't pay attention because Judah's back here, a little bit better than Israel. They had some good kings. And they're watching Israel go down the tube and they're going down the drain and they go into captivity. They should have learned, but they didn't learn because they went the same direction and went in captivity too when they did the very same thing. They weren't watching the problems of others. There's some things we ought to pay close attention to. For example, our history. Our history as a nation, our history as a church, history as the people of God, and look and see where this road had led before. See, history repeats itself. 
And so if I'm not familiar with history, here is a, a concept that came into the church maybe years ago, and where did that lead? Well, it led to apostasy. Well, it's coming in again maybe, and I'm ignoring that because I don't know my history, and I'm following the same road, and I'm not paying attention to what Israel's doing over here because I and Judah are doing the very same thing. And it leads to the same destruction. We need to pay attention to the problems of others. What happened before us? We need to pay attention to the problems in other families. I don't mean by that you look at another family and say, you know, they're having problems and I'm glad I don't have those problems. But when someone is ahead of you in the sense, maybe their children are older than yours, and you've seen how their tolerance led to their children going astray, you might take heed that my tolerance isn't going to work any better. You see, I saw that they didn't discipline their children, and their children turned out wild and ended up in the world, and I'm not disciplining my children, but I think mine will turn out better. Don't think so, because you're following the same course, perhaps. Or here's a family that didn't have time for, for their children, and their children suffered, but you say, I don't have time for mine either, but I don't think mine are going to suffer. I'm not taking heed. I'm in Judah looking at Israel thinking, we're going to be different. Take heed to the problems of others. Maybe we need to pay attention to what's going on in other churches. How so? Maybe there's some ideas and practices in denominationalism that eventually make their way to the church. Maybe here's a new idea that's going on in denominationalism and a new practice. Don't think that that won't infiltrate the church at some point. It may be a few years, but it'll come down the line and you'll find it infiltrating into the church. It'll then be seen in institutional churches. And you'll see those institutional churches practicing that. And that's going to come our way eventually. And that'll influence us. And we're not paying attention to what's going on. We need to look at the problems of others. You see, when they went that road, look how far they went. Where's it going to lead us? We need to pay attention to the loose thinking and the toleration among non-institutional churches and how that'll spread. Because this idea over here in this church... Because of connections we may have with them, it'll infiltrate this church eventually. That idea will come in. And so we need to pay attention. How, wh where's that loose thinking going? What's happened to that church because of their toleration over the last 20 years? What, where have they gone and what have they accepted? What are they doing now that I wouldn't accept? Because I may be headed on the same course if I'm not careful. Go back and read chapter 415 with me again. Though Israel play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Don't follow her in their shoes. We need to pay attention to the problems of others. Here's the fifth thing I learned. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. There is such a thing as walking by human precept. There is such a thing as walking by human precept. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. I told you Hosea was for today, because that's no different than our own day and time. And by the way, that's the only alternative when you reject the precepts of God. We saw earlier, they've forgotten the law of God. They rejected the counsel of God. The only alternative is to walk by human precept. Now, what does that involve? Well, that might involve listening to those who teach contrary to the word. They listen to false prophets, by the way. And so when someone is teaching something contrary to the law of God, and I listen to that and I embrace that, whether it be in the world, be among brethren, be in denominationalism, be in a commentary, 
our own preacher, it doesn't make any difference who it is, if they teach something contrary to the law of God and I'm following after that, I'm walking by human precepts. It might be that I'm listening to the advice of friends and family that is contrary to the will of God. I'm now walking by human precepts. It may be that I'm following my own wisdom. That I decide, you know what, here's what I think is going to work. Here's what I think to be right. Here's what I, my judgment is, and I'm not consulting the law of God. I'm walking by human precepts. Now let's go back to our text. In chapter 5 and verse 11. What they're following is useless. And let's notice a couple of translations that may help us. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, For he determined, this is in chapter 5 and verse 11, because he willingly walked in human precepts, that he determined to follow what is worthless. Well, human precepts are worthless. The English Standard translates that, because he was determined to go after filth. You take human precepts that go in the wrong direction in contrast to the law of God that is filth. And it is worthless and it's useless. But let's go again. This time let's go to chapter 6 now and talk about fading faithfulness. Fading faithfulness. Let's go to chapter 6 and in verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do with you? O Judah, what shall I do with you? For your faithfulness is like the morning cloud and like the dew that, does, that goes away. Fading faithfulness. Now here's what I'm seeing. Faithfulness here in this text in verse 4 is compared to a morning cloud and dew that's soon gone. You get up in the morning and there's the cloud and it's not there in just a few moments. You get up and the grass is wet with dew and then by noon it's gone. It's faded, it's gone, it's disappeared. Now chapter 13, jump over to chapter 13, hold your finger there, we're coming back to chapter 6. Turn over to chapter 13, that same language is used with reference to consequences they faced, that Israel's not going to last. And that's the point being made here. It's not in the same context, but it is in the context in the sense that because of their fading faithfulness, they are not going to last, they're going to do. He said, therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. He gives two other illustrations of things that are, that are there and then they're soon gone. So he describes them as a nation are not going to last, but over here he talks about their faithfulness did not last. I told you that fits the modern time, Hosea for today. So let's ask, could our faithfulness be like the morning dew? Sometimes it is. You have a new convert sometimes that just been baptized and they are on fire for the Lord. I mean, they're excited. They can't serve the Lord enough. They can't attend enough. They can't study enough. They can't learn enough. They're on fire for the Lord. And they soon then lose that excitement. What happened? Their faithfulness faded like the morning dew. It's gone. Their excitement faded like the morning dew. Or we sometimes talk to someone about their lack of attendance. Well, quite frequently, the elders will go talk to someone and say, you know what, you, you've been missing a lot of services and we urge them to do better. And you know what they'll do? They'll do better for a little while. 
And they start attending and they do a little bit better and then it fades like the morning dew. It doesn't take very long. It's just a few Sundays later, it tapers off and they quit attending again. You go back and talk to them and they do a little bit better and then it fades off like the morning cloud. Just like the text says. Sometimes it applies to a marriage circumstance. People get married. They're devoted to each other. They're excited about being together. They're close. And then that closeness is soon gone. Faded like the morning cloud. What happened to the romance and the excitement? We start a new Bible study. Maybe it's your personal study you're doing. Maybe it's a Bible class we're doing. We're ready to dig in. We all want to be at the class. And then the excitement is all gone like the morning dew. Have you ever noticed when you have a special class, maybe it's a Sunday afternoon class, you'll have the biggest crowd on the first session? And a little smaller on the second, and by the third it starts tapering off. Faith like the morning dew. Fading faithfulness. Very practical for our day and time. Let's go to chapter 6 again. Here's something else. We learned something about inward versus outward service. Inward versus outward service. Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He said, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Here's something God desires. There are two things he says he desires. He He desires mercy. What do you mean by mercy? The footnote in the New King James will say faithfulness and loyalty over sacrifice. And knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What does that mean? What's the point? The point is God wants inward and not merely outward service. It is not saying God didn't want sacrifice or burnt offerings because this is in Old Testament times and God did require sacrifice and he did require burnt offerings. That tells me he he expected that and he wanted that and he desired that. That's not saying I don't desire it. What he's saying is I want more than that is I want your dedication and your inward service. The New Century Version said, I want faithfulness more than I want animal sacrifices and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, don't just bring the sacrifice and give it and then walk off. Don't bring your burnt offerings and don't bring your heart and walk off. I want your heart. I want your dedication and your loyalty. Now, by the way, that's quoted in the New Testament. You might hold your finger at Hosea. We're coming back. Let's go over to the book of Matthew. Start with Matthew chapter 9, then we'll go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 9 and 13, Hosea is quoted that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is in the context of Jesus associating with sinners, with tax collectors. And they're asking, why does he associate with sinners? We'll say more about that in just a second. Keep that in your mind. Go to Matthew chapter 12, and in verse 7, he quotes that again. It's in the context of violating the Sabbath or the charge of violating the Sabbath. Here's the point. In both texts, there was something that was missing in the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 9, the the accusation of eating with sinners, the Pharisees were without love for the sinner. There was something inward that was missing. And that's why the passage is quoted. In Matthew chapter 12, the accusation of violating the Sabbath, the Pharisees were without concern for the need of the disciples. And so they were missing something, and thus the text is quoted. 
Now I know why that was quoted because I know the context in which it's found. Here's what I'm learning from this. Service and obedience that is heartless, that is without a true genuine heart, is indeed worthless. God wants more than outward service. Is it possible that we could go through the motions? And obviously that wouldn't be enough. But is it possible we could do that, for example, in prayer? Could we be in prayer just going through the motions of saying the words, but we're not putting any thought into that? Could I go through the motion of the Lord's Supper, taking of the elements, but I'm not thinking and discerning the Lord's body? Could I say the words of the song or give of my means, and there's no heart in that, and there's no, no love and devotion in that? Obviously so. God wants more than outward service. Here's a colorful expression in chapter 8, 7, and in verse 8. A cake unturned. A cake unturned. Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake unturned. That's a colorful expression. Here's some translations that may help us. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over, the New International says. The New Century says he's like a pancake cooked only on one side. Now that gets home, doesn't it? We can understand that. Here's the idea, here's what it means. You overdo one area to the neglect of another area. And in this case, Israel had overdone it in the matter of sin, but they were lacking in their relationship to God. What about their idolatry? Oh, they are cooked and burnt with idolatry, but in their relationship and their trust in God, they were raw as they could be. They're a cake unturned. They're like a pancake that hadn't been flipped over. It's just as runny as it can be on the top, and on the bottom it's as black as it can be. Well, there's some application to make of that. It may be that we're not turning our cakes. Could it be that you're a cake unturned? What a colorful expression. It might be that we're overcooked with worldliness and raw in spirituality. You ever seen a Christian that is overcooked with worldliness? They're involved in every form of worldliness. It might be materialism. It might be drinking. It might be just running with worldly friends. It might be a number of things. They're overcooked with worldliness, but they're raw in spirituality. They don't have a thimble full of spirituality in them, but they're overcooked with worldliness. They're like a cake unturned. Sometimes we're overdone with our emphasis on our favorite soapbox. We're uncooked on other Bible topics. How so? Probably all of us have a subject that's a favorite of ours, and, and when we find someone in violation of that, we're ready to pounce because that's our favorite Bible subject. It might be divorce and remarriage for one. It might be modesty for another. It might be attendance for someone else. It might be forgiveness for someone else. And we're overcooked and we're overdone with emphasis on our favorite soapbox. And we emphasize to everyone about the need for attendance or maybe the need for modesty or the need to, to adhere to divorce and remarriage scriptures. But it may be that there's some other Bible topics that we're just as raw as we can be. We're not giving any emphasis at all. Are we not turning our cakes? Maybe we're overdone and burnt with outward sin, but undone with what we don't do. What I mean by that, we give great emphasis. I'm not committing these sins of idolatry and adultery and, and fornication and uh, homosexuality and drunkenness. I don't do all of that, but what are you not doing? What are you leaving undone? 
You see, maybe I'm cooked to the crisp of giving emphasis to outward sin, but I'm not giving much emphasis to leaving undone things that God has told me to do. A cake unturned. What a colorful expression. Number nine, chapter seven, verse 16. Hosea talked about a change that is not complete. A change that is not complete. They return, verse 16 says, but not to the Most High. They return, but not to the Most High. They turn, but not to God. Some translations render it, they turn, and others say they return. They turn, but not upward, your translation may say. The New American Standard, this is not a direct quote, but it's indicating that they turn, they turn from something, but when they turn, they didn't turn to God. But they made a change, apparently. That's the idea of the New King James using the word return. They made a change. Brown Driver and Briggs says the word translated return means to turn back or to return. So they did make a change. Go back now to your text, verse 16. They change, they return, but not to the most high. In other words, they're like a crooked bow. Look at the uh, second part of verse 16. They are like a deceitful bow. It's the idea of a crooked bow that doesn't fly straight. You take the bow and, and you, it's a crooked bow and you shoot the air up, but it doesn't go straight. Didn't accomplish what you wanted. They turned, but they didn't turn in the right direction. Again, like shooting the air, I wanted to go there, but I turned and went a different direction with the arrow because it was a crooked bow, a deceitful bow. And so they turned, but they didn't turn back to God. Here's the point. It's possible to have a partial turning toward God. You say, well, well, I don't know about that. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Hold your finger at Hosea. We're not through. Jeremiah 3 and in verse 10. For yet, for all her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Judah turned to God, didn't bring her whole heart. It was only in pretense, the text said. Only partial turning to God. Here's what I'm learning from that. We can change and yet it not be complete. You see, I could stop the sin, but I didn't really repent. Maybe the adultery stopped because the the relationship went south. That didn't mean I repented. I could quit stealing because I was afraid of getting caught, not because I repented. You can stop sin, but not necessarily repent. You return, but not to the most high. We could start doing better and yet not be far enough in our change. Here's one who's just quit attending altogether, and they start attending a little bit every once a month. They're doing better. It's better than not attending at all, I suppose, but they're not where they ought to be. They turn, but not to the most high. Or maybe we make a change, but it's for the wrong reason. Maybe I start going to church to keep the family happy. Or I go to church so that I won't be withdrawn from, but I'm not really interested in serving the Lord. We return, but not to the most high. Number 10. It's possible, chapter 8 and verse 7, to sow to the wind and reap a whirlwind. This is what was going on with Israel. Look at verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, he said. 
They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. What's that about? They reap great consequences to their action. Their acts are small, and I put in parentheses, seemingly small, comparative. But they have great consequences. You see, Israel had turned to idols and turned to other nations for their comfort and for their protection. And consequently, they're going to lose their nation in captivity. And they did in 722. So they sowed the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. Here's what I'm learning. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, I may tolerate things in my children that seem kind of small right now. Maybe it's misbehavior, and I tolerate that. Maybe it's a smart mouth I'm putting up with. And I may reap the whirlwind when I have a child I can't control, and they're rebellious, and they're in trouble with the law, and I don't know what to do about it. I sow the wind, and I reap the whirlwind. Maybe it's a material mindset with very little focus on the spiritual. Maybe as I'm raising my family and bringing my family up, the focus is on money and materialism and my job and making money and making everybody happy and getting everything they want. Very little emphasis on spiritual things. And then I sit back and scratch my head. Why did my children go to the world? And why are they so materially minded? And why are they more interested in money than in God? I may have sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind told you Hosea was for today. Maybe we ignore a softer stand and the strange views among brethren, uncertain sounds among brethren. And maybe we go to a congregation and somebody warns us, you know what? They've been very tolerant on some error, on creation, on divorce and remarriage, on fellowship. And you say, you know what, though, the relationships are there good and, and they've, they've got good families there and I think that's going to outweigh the dangers that are involved. You may be sowing to the wind and don't be surprised when the whirlwind comes back and somebody has gone astray and have lost their faith and their confidence in the word. Don't be surprised. When your children come home and they've learned some things from uncertain sounds among brethren. We sow to the wind and we reap the whirlwind. Let's go to chapter 14, number 11. Chapter 14 now is that plea for repentance, the change, the restoration as we talked about. So chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 is a picture of true repentance, not that feigned repentance of turning but not to the most high. Look at chapter 14 now beginning at verse 1. He says, Israel return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. And say to him, take away all our iniquity. Receive us graciously. For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our God, for, you, the Father, uh, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. All right, let's see what we see. There's several points involved in repentance. First of all, it involves returning, verse 1, to the Lord. Remember earlier they returned but not to the Most High? This involves returning to the Lord. Secondly, it involves an acknowledgement of wrong that will come to God and, and, and for you have, uh, uh, verse 2, take away all of our iniquity. We are guilty of iniquity. We have stumbled and we have sinned. And so true repentance is an acknowledgement of wrong. Thirdly, 
Notice it's a plea to remove our guilt. Take away our iniquity. I want the guilt gone. I want the sin gone. I don't want to justify it. I want it gone. And then furthermore, verses 2 and 3, there's a plea and a pledge for change. We're not going to go and ride on horses anymore. What does that mean? We're not putting our confidence in an army. We're going to put our confidence in God. We're not going to say to Assyria, we'll put our confidence in you. We're not going to say to the gods that we made, you are our gods. We're going to make a change. Now let's talk about true repentance in light of that. True repentance involves more than stopping the sin. It, that doesn't make you one repent within itself. It involves more than saying, you know what, I have sinned. And telling others, you know what, I've done wrong. That's not repentance. Repentance is a complete change of the will described in verses 1 through 3. And repentance involves genuine sorrow and remorse described in verses 1 to 3. One more time, let's go to chapter 14 now and look at verse 4. Finally. Number 12, God will forgive. God will forgive. He said, I will heal their backsliding. God will forgive. Now that's based upon verses 1 to 3. It was the previous three verses that described repentance. Now God will forgive based if they change. Now notice the forgiveness that's described as per the context. Verse 2 he says... Take away all our iniquity. When God forgives, he's taking away the guilt. He's taking away the iniquity. In other words, he takes it away as if it wasn't there. It's not you still have the iniquity, but I'm not going to hold it against you. It's like God takes the iniquity and the sin away as if you didn't do it. It's all the same as if you had never committed the sin. The iniquity is taken away. That's forgiveness. Notice in verse 2, he also receives us graciously. There's a difference in receiving and receiving graciously. Have you ever had someone to embrace you and receive you, but it really wasn't all that gracious? It's kind of like, well, I, I guess I could accept you. Particularly if you've done wrong, you apologize, and you, you, are, you sin and you repent, and it's like, okay, I, I guess I can accept you now. That's not God. God graciously receives. That's forgiveness. Here's a third thing. Notice in verse 4, he will heal our backsliding. It's a picture of healing. It's like an injury or a wound that's been sore and, and damaged and now it's healed and it's, it's better now. So that backsliding of going back into sin, it's as if it never happened. It's all healed up. Notice verse 4, God's anger has turned away from him. He's no longer angry. It's a picture that when sin, God's mad and God's angry at the sin, and the anger is gone. Again, as if we had never committed the sin. And then verses 5 and 6, we're going to be ultimately blessed. And they, I will be like the dew of Israel, and he will grow like a lily and lengthen his roots in like Lebanon, etc. on down through verse 6 and following. In other words, it's, they're going to be like a plant that's well watered, and they're going to take root, and they'll grow, and they'll be blessed. So what is forgiveness like? Forgiveness is like taking all the iniquity away and being received graciously by God, the healing of backsliding, the anger of God turned away, and then being richly blessed. You see, God will forgive you of any and all of your sin, whatever it may be. You say, well, I've got a lot of sin. I've just got a, I've got a, a whole bunch of sins. God will forgive all of them. He'll remember those sins and iniquities against you no more. Hebrews 8 
and verse 12. Hosea 4 today. There's a lot in Hosea. It's a colorful prophet, colorful expressions. And so reading through Hosea is not just a picture of what was Israel like and what did the prophet need to say. There's some things that, man, that fits us. Like God views his people who sin as if they are committing adultery. And God's merciful in his love. We sometimes can forget the law of God. We need to pay attention to the sins of others lest we do the same thing. We need not walk in human precepts. We have a tendency to do that. Our faithfulness needs not be fading like the morning dew. God wants inward, not outward service. We can be a cake unturned, burn on one side and raw on the other. We can make a change but not be complete. We can sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. We see what true repentance is and we see that God indeed will forgive. It may be that you're standing in need of forgiveness this morning. If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, you need the forgiveness that's described in the book of Hosea. God will heal your backsliding. God will remove the iniquity and hold it against you no more. Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? There may be an erring child of God who needs to make correction. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?